Hi listeners, thanks for tuning in and listening to the NetRag Plus podcast to our very first episode. Welcome along, my name's Chris O'Deedon, I'm an emergency physician in North East London and our first conversation is here. A bit delayed but here we are. So a few weeks ago we had a very first virtual training day for our emergency medicine trainees in North Central and North East London. We held it at Newham University Hospital which is where I work and one of the sessions that we made available to our trainees is the one you're about to hear. I was lucky enough to speak to a couple of colleagues, Ragashree Darawan, who's a consultant in sexual health and HIV medicine, and Darren Chetty, who's a teaching fellow at UCL, specialising in education and the critical philosophy of race. And they both published an article back in March, which is based upon the health disparities that are notable between different groups in the population we serve and the racism that underlies these disparities. Now I found this article a really challenging read for many reasons, thus I thought it would make an excellent basis to challenge our trainees around the work they do and the population that we serve in our work as emergency physicians. But I think you'll agree, the subject matter is important to every physician the world over dealing directly with patients and to the rest of you who are part of society and have to deal with each other. Now, since we spoke, the world has been an eventful place, to say the least. And the death of George Floyd at the hands of a structurally racist institution has shone a light on the huge work that we all have to do around debunking our own privilege and working on the structural problems inherent in our societies and in our own thinking. So I think it's urgent that we get this podcast out into the public domain for you to listen to, for you to contemplate, for you to share and comment. And despite significant time elapsing between the article that they wrote and our conversation and a bit more time from the recording up until now I think all of the themes are still hugely relevant so I really hope you enjoy and more on how to engage with us at NetRag Plus after you hear the conversation. Happy listening. In terms of the context of why we're here you have both written an article that I read recently that I thought was really relevant to our patient population in East London and Newham specifically because of the differences in health outcomes that we've seen between some of our patient groups. And I'm really interested to hear about how you came to write the paper and what motivated you to do it. So I think we noticed really early on that there were some um, racial disparities in outcomes from COVID. And we knew that actually racial disparities are really common in health disease areas. So this wasn't that surprising, but we were interested in the discussion around it. And that really made us write the paper. And from my point of view, so just giving you a bit of my background, I'm a consultant at Bart's Health, mainly based at the Royal London, and I I specialise in sexual health and HIV. And kind of my journey into thinking about this type of area really started when I was a registrar, when I started to notice that, you know, lots of our patients were from minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, And, you know, we always talk about how well we're doing with HIV and that we have amazing drugs um, and people can have a normal life expectancy. But despite this, I noticed that all the patients I was seeing on the ward, um, those with AIDS defining diseases, those who were diagnosed very late, tended to come from BME backgrounds. So I started just to really kind of question why was there that difference? Um, And the other thing for me was looking at the more sexual health side of things. Again, there's well-known kind of racial disparities in sexual health. So if we look at um, rates of STIs, um, there is a difference. So, for example, in black Caribbean groups, they're more likely to have syphilis or gonorrhea. 
And when I looked into that, I found that actually those differences have been known about since the 1950s. So this is a disparity that has been around for 70 years and hasn't really changed. So I think that kind of really troubled me. And I thought, you know, why is this? Why are there no interventions? Why don't we know what's going on? So I started to have a look at the literature. Most of the um, literature around racial disparities in healthcare were in the US and were done by scholars of colour. And again, I think that just kind of got me thinking that perhaps, you know, this is a US scholarship. Does it apply to the UK where we have different healthcare systems? But actually in the UK, where is the data? We don't have it. So that's really got me thinking about kind of racial disparities over the last few years. To expand on that, Darren, are your reasons for being interested in this similar or are they different given your different professional backgrounds at Rageshri? Yeah, so I'm I'm a teaching fellow at UCL. Uh, my background's in education and particularly in philosophy of education, but also philosophy more broadly and the critical philosophy of race. Um, so I guess one of the things that I, I was picking up on with the early reports around COVID-19 was, yes, they were talking about health disparities, but as Ragashi was saying, they weren't ever putting that in a context for your average viewer that this is the latest in a relatively long line of health disparities. Um, so it seemed as if there was something unique about uh, COVID-19 and the fact that it was uh, black and brown people who were being worst affected. Uh, so that was, I guess, one aspect. The other aspect was going back to the earliest parts of them talking, and this was almost like the start of lockdown, there was the talk about the, the possibility of the NHS being completely overwhelmed. And and there was some conversation around really trying to calculate in those circumstances who would have the best life choices, so who would get the resources. You know, if there aren't enough beds, if there aren't enough places in ITU, who should get them? And it seemed as if there was a possibility that we were moving towards a situation of saying that just as with over 70s, that with black and brown people, they might be the ones who wouldn't pull through. And therefore, if it came to that situation, go with the safe bet, uh, therefore go with uh, white patients. And that seemed to me a particularly uh, troubling thing because it would only exacerbate those existing inequalities. Now, we were perhaps overly cautious there. We touch wood, we haven't got to that situation of, of being completely overwhelmed. We don't know what's going to happen as, as lockdown eases. Um, but that was another reason, I think, for, for trying to, to write this article. And, and our, our attempt was, we, what we really wanted was to place it in a, in a medical journal because we wanted to be able to speak to a medical audience. And, and that proved a bit tricky. OK, well, I'd love to come back to the reasons for that a little bit later. But um, in terms of some themes that to draw out of what we've said already for our emergency medicine trainees, a lot of what we're going to be talking about um, that's quite close to home is about allocation of resources, which even if we haven't hit what we were expecting in terms of a peak in COVID, happens on a daily basis within emergency departments. So who gets mm -hmm. what and do we have enough of what we need? And I'm not talking necessarily about shortages. I'm talking about trying to stretch your staff over different patients with different needs and that kind of stuff. But also, more broadly, unconscious bias. And do we have the same standards? And do we apply the same things for every patient? But before we get to that, um, I'd really like to hear a bit of background and specifically about the kinds of research that we're talking about and also a bit about the background of health outcomes research in the UK, specifically around the MARMA review 10 years on, actually. 
What are your thoughts on those two things? So I think the Marmot Review is an incredibly important piece of work. Um, so Marmot did his original review and then did one um, 10 years later, and it had several really standout findings. Um, so for the first time, it showed that in 100 years, life expectancy has flattened since 2010. So life expectancy has been increasing, but for the first time, it started to flatten. And actually, in some groups, it's going down. And he identified that the poorest 10% of women in the country, um, for them, this has happened. He also showed that the amount of time that men and women spend in ill health in the most deprived areas of England has increased as well. So things are going in the wrong direction. And I think what's really important about this review is that it shows the links between the environment, the social determinants of health um, and health outcomes and life expectancy. And I think one of the other things that's, that's really interesting about it is in its recommendations, it recommends a national strategy for preventing health inequalities rather than just dealing with them. And it advises things to address the social determinants of health, such as increasing minimum wages, reducing child poverty. So the kind of things that we as doctors perhaps don't have the power to do, but shows that we do have the power to advise governments on what we can on what can be done to improve population health. So I think that's a really important thing. It's really indisputable what Darren said about COVID affecting black and brown patients more, not just because of anecdotes of faces that we've sadly seen in the news and in the media, but also the data that's coming out of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and the Office of National Statistics is really making it clear that COVID is not a great leveller and has wildly different outcomes in different patient groups, as we're going to talk about more. Um, and also, just more specifically and close to home, in terms of the London Borough of Newham and the surrounding East London boroughs, there really is a perfect storm here, given that there are so many inequitable social determinants of health, problems with gentrification, housing, income, as you've already mentioned, and the rates of comorbidities. So Darren, um, um, have you got anything specific that you wanted to say with regard to Marma and racial outcomes as well? Well, less so with Marma. I mean, Ragashri obviously has far more knowledge than, than I on that. But I think, I think what I see is parallels with how we talk about education, which is that we often think about, okay, what can we be doing with those individual children? Um, but actually, Actually, if we're, if we're talking about education in the broader sense, then we recognise that something like housing policy is education policy. And similarly, housing policy is health policy. So if, if we're really concerned about improving health outcomes, we will, as Mama recommends, we will attend to those, those bigger policies uh, that are going to affect uh, the life outcomes of, of people. So I guess if you're working with, with the population in Newham, you're working with a population who have far more challenges in their lives before they even get to a situation where they need to access the health service. Um, and it, perhaps being mindful of that you know, can be useful. I'm not suggesting that that solves everything. You've got to deal with those patients in front of you and their specific uh, challenges. Um, but there is a broader context for the the likelihood of those challenges coming perhaps earlier at life than, than the rest of the population. And that's a, a, another thing to factor in. Understood. The piece you've co-written discusses biological versus social causes of ethnic health disparities. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about what that means? Yeah, I mean, this biological versus health uh, versus social. I think the, the the reality is there's a complicated interdependence between these things, 
uh, and that what we were hearing in, in certainly the, the mainstream media coverage rather than medical discourse was uh, a lot of speculation that, well, if black people are dying uh, at a higher rate, then what is it about black people? Uh, and, and this idea of black people as a group was really harking back to a notion of there being a distinct thing that, that, that we can call black people, and that rests on an idea of there being uh, biologically discrete races. Now, mainstream science, there are a few outliers, but mainstream science now talks about that as a pseudo-scientific idea, that there are discrete races. And you can go back to Linnaeus, you can go back to sort of the Enlightenment period, and what you've got in all those cases where people are trying to claim there are discrete races is a taxonomy. You've got a hierarchy. And it's always the white Europeans who are generating these theories who are placed at the top. Uh, it's usually uh, black uh, African people who are placed at the bottom. Uh, and in the earlier iterations of those theories, it's not simply about uh, physical differences. They're also making links with intelligence, which sadly is a debate that still uh, hasn't fully gone away. With You've seen the, the recent eugenics conference at UCL, uh, only a couple of years ago that Toby Young attended and um, which hit the the headlines but also in those in those racial taxonomies you've got a kind of moral difference so there's an a, a bit there's an attempt to equate being black with being morally inferior uh, and being white with being morally superior now i don't think your average person goes around talking in those terms anymore but when they suggest that someone who is black might have something about them that is causing this to happen, they're actually building on this legacy that, of racial thinking that that has so permeated our, our culture, in, you know, and our culture being sort of European Western culture uh, over the past two, three hundred years, that it's really important, I think, that we we track that legacy so that we can interrupt that kind of lazy thinking. Understood. And so um, by interrupting what you're describing as lazy thinking which i think is entirely fair because there are logic and inferences there that are not based on any scientific research how can we bring in and make it really clear via research that the, that there are social causes that need to be looked at because i guess the bit that troubles me as somebody who's got a firm basis in um, I suppose the natural sciences, but much less so in social sciences, is that I don't see all that much evidence of there being research performed into these social causes in real time, as there are for potential biological causes. And having read your article, I find that kind of scary. I think as doctors, I think in the way that we're trained, sometimes it can be sometimes easier to look at biological causes, because I think, you know, that's something that we might be able to change. Whereas if we're saying the causes are due to complex kind of social or, social or, or structural issues, that's something that may not be in our power to change. So I think sometimes it's easier to do that. But I think we're also not taught about how the social causes actually can affect biology. So instead of looking at race as a risk factor for certain diseases, we should perhaps be looking at racism as a cause for those things. So to give you some examples to do with healthcare, we know that there are studies in the US which show that people who experience daily discrimination due to you know, different types of racism, for example, they can have increased um, risk of, of, of conditions like hypertension or metabolic issues like diabetes, because that kind of daily discrimination 
increases um, stress hormones in the body, increases cortisol, which disrupts um, the metabolism and actually can lead to those increased conditions. So those underlying conditions, for example, that we're seeing associated with COVID can be linked biologically to racism, for example. Um, and I guess the other thing we need to think about is um, when we've got the patient in front of us, you know, what kind of advice do we give them? So if we're saying that people from ethnic minority backgrounds are, more, are kind of more likely to live in poverty, um, to live uh, to work in jobs which are more frontline, for example, working more night shifts, long hours, they may not be able to make such healthy choices and that also can affect their health outcomes. Um, so, for example, when we've got the patient in front of us and we're trying to give them health advice around stopping smoking, maybe drinking less, eating more healthy food, I think it's really important that we think about what are the other issues in their lives that may make them more likely to, to carry out these unhealthy behaviours. So, I mean, for many people, drinking alcohol can be a form of self-medication. So thinking about what are they self-medicating against? Well, it might be against the issues in their lives like poverty or racism, as I've experienced, so, as, I've, as, I've, um, as I've just said. So I think it's really important that when we do give that kind of individual lifestyle advice to patients, we're thinking about the other issues in their lives because I think there can be a fine balance between giving good advice that gives them the agency to make their own healthy life choices and between victim blaming them. So I think it's something important we need to think about. Yeah, and uh, you know, sociologists talk about this as as agency and structure. So obviously, with patients, you want them to recognise the the full extent of their agency so that they do. Uh, ex, you know, exercise it to to the best of their abilities. But at the same time, there are structural things uh, beyond their agency that are that are limiting in, and shaping that agency. You know, we have freedom of choice, but we have freedom of choice in a context that is not of our own uh, choosing. Uh, and I think it's it's trying to keep a balance of that, as Ragashu says. Uh, you know, sort of educating and helping people to take respons- responsibility but not engaging in something that's victim blaming whereby if people don't always make the best choices for themselves, we simply see that as the end of the story. I can think already of several examples of patient populations that might come to an emergency department where everything that we've talked about is highly relevant. But I would like to ask specifically from your perspective, Rageshri, in terms of your everyday work, how has your specialty adapted to your patient population by making sure that it's aware of this huge context what kind of adaptations have you undergone that we perhaps could think about either mirroring or observing i think it's very different isn't it because they're quite different specialties um but thinking about hiv so i think i think what's different for us is um, when we see someone living with hiv it's, it's kind of a long relationship we have with them so we might see them for years and years and they see the same clinician so we've got much more opportunity to, de- to develop a relationship with them and really find out what's going on in their lives. So things that we think about all the time are, you know, have they got money? Do they have access to benefits? What about advice around immigration status, housing, all those things? So we're quite lucky because we have a very active HIV charity sector. So we can quite easily refer our patients who are struggling with these issues um, for advice regarding um, all those factors, because we know that those are the things that are um, impacting on their health. It makes it less easy for them to take their HIV medications every day, less easy for them to come to clinic regularly and have their bloods done. So I think in HIV, I think that's probably how we've adapted things. I'm not sure how that would work in, in ED, except 
maybe making sure that you guys do have good links to organisations that you can refer patients to or making their GPs aware um, of, of those issues that come up. I know that the Runnymede Trust uh, have been doing some really good work, you know, trying to sort of comb through the data that's emerging. Um, and I saw something, I, I can't remember the exact stats, but they, they showed that there's a huge uh, differential between uh, Indian, British Indian population and Pakistani. Now, if if what we were talking about was some kind of, you know, something about the body, something about their ethnicity, then actually you're talking about people who are from the same part of the world who aren't ethnically distinct. If we're using eth- ethnic to be some kind of proxy for biology, obviously ethnicity sometimes stretches to cultural and religious practices as well. But there was a the the, the outcomes for Pakistani population were far worse. Now. There is lots of data that that, that that population compared to the Indian population in this country, due to migration patterns, due to who was migrating, uh, is uh, you know of a of of a lower income uh, class background. So it seems once again that you can't you can't sort of un separate racism and, and class. That, that that poverty is playing a role in this rather than oh they're South Asian, so therefore they're like this. If we, if we move on a little bit to think a bit about unconscious bias, so if we try and make this really close to home, what I'm keen for our listeners mm-hmm. to, to, to think about, this is an issue for every single physician, um, myself included, about how our unconscious biases affect the decisions that we make at work. Um, because what I guess I'm hearing and feeling is, is that we know these outcome disparities exist. We can't wave a magic wand and change them immediately. And I'm very much on board with the idea that as clinicians that we're advocates for change for things even outside of medical care but it definitely is close to home that what observing these disparities being there triggers in terms of how we look for causes or reasons for these disparities is something that we can control so you've already talked about the fact that we've had some problems thinking about how uh, they're the thoughts around there are biological causes when there are so when there's so much evidence for social differences but when it comes down to unconscious bias and specific patient decisions can you give us any kind of illustrations or 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 examples about how this might happen for either from your practice or anything that you've read so i think um one example, really good example is how we treat people with pain. And I think that's probably quite relevant to, to you guys in ED. Um, so I think in terms of pain, people have been treated differently in many ways over the centuries. So a really good example of this is around women and women being believed about having pain. Um, and, you know, the word hysteria comes from, from women in that they have, they're very emotional um, and actually their pain can be explained by their emotions. It's not real. And a good way that this still plays out today is, for example, when we think about diseases like endometriosis, where one of the main symptoms is pain. One thing that Rageshri was keen for me to correct when I edited this podcast was that on average women wait around seven and a half years between first seeing a doctor and getting a confirmed diagnosis of endometriosis. Back to the podcast. And when you think about the intersections of of race and gender, we sometimes also see it when we stereotype people. So there is quite a common stereotype that I've um, certainly read about and probably heard about around kind of middle-aged and older Asian women who have all over body pain and the belief that actually they're always complaining about pain all over. It's psychosomatic. And if we think that about our patients, then we delay investigating what might be very real causes of pain 
and real disease areas. And when you look into the kind of literature around unconscious bias and um, pre uh, prescribing analgesia, it's very interesting, actually. So it's quite a famous um, study done in the US where they interviewed um, medical students and junior doctors. And what they found was that um, they believed that um, black people felt less pain than white people. And the reason for that was because they were biologically different. So they had less nerve endings near the skin and they have thicker skin. So they felt pain less. Jeez. And wow. what that has led to, and many studies show this in the US, is that people from ethnic minority backgrounds are given much less analgesia than white groups. So that is a really big impact. And the other kind of bit of unconscious bias, there is also the kind of stereotype that people from ethnic minority backgrounds are much more likely to abuse pain medications mm -hmm. like opioids mm -hmm. so we don't want them to become addicted or they might be a drug addict and they're not telling us so we should prescribe them less so I think those things are really important to think about um, when we're when we are um, assessing people's pain and pre prescribing pain relief um, the kind of the delay in believing people that they're in pain can mm. be really problematic yeah, and if I can just add to that, I think in in the branch of philosophy, I'm particularly interested of epistemology and you know what it means to know something. Um, one of the things that sort of people look at is our our, our explanatory uh, frameworks. So, you know, what sort of stories we have that we sort of go to to understand situations as quickly as possible. And and again, I think you know in medicine that the, there are there are cases where, as Ravishi was saying, that if you know a little bit about the history of of those those narratives, you're more likely to not be seduced by them when they're they're basically premised on on faulty or or, or non scientific reasons. Um, and I, I think the other aspect is is what uh, what's termed as uh, epistemic injustice and particularly testimonial injustice, which I think the example of, of women uh, that Ragashri gave uh, would, would fit into that, which is where certain people are just seen to have a, a, a deficit of credibility. So they, they might well be reporting their experiences of how they're feeling, but their words don't count for as much as if they were gendered or racialized differently. So, so there's a danger if we're not careful of of all of us uh, not taking people's uh, words as seriously, and of course of that then getting in the way of the patient doctor relationship. So you you effectively have this sort of breakdown of trust where some patients may, for reasonably logical reasons, have a deep distrust of the medical profession. Perhaps they've had a bad uh, previous experience. Perhaps someone in their family has. Perhaps they're worried that you know that there's something around their migration status that's going to get in the way, and so we ha you have problems then of really getting uh, a trust a trustful relationship where people are listened to in the way that they deserve to be. And I think in, in terms of COVID nineteen, there actually have been some examples. So we have heard about some people who are of ethnic minority backgrounds who have died at home, having called ambulances, um, and they haven't had their their symptoms taken seriously enough for them to be taken into hospital. So you might say that, you know, perhaps there is some unconscious bias there, which is affecting um, people's ability to, to take them seriously. My name's Emma Young. I'm an a &E consultant. I work at Newham and at the Royal London, and I'm a training programme director for North Central and East London. When I'm not listening to NetReg Plus, I'm riding my bike, swimming in rivers and ignoring my children.
I think what's really interesting about picking about picking out some of the stuff that you've both said is to draw not only on specifically vulnerable patient groups of which women with chronic abdominal pain or a diagnosis or lack of endometriosis is one, but also sickle cell anemia is a huge group that we have in East London that we have problems with in terms of managing their pain, but also the fact that in emergency medicine, certainly we are always using heuristics or mental shortcuts to try and help us work out what is wrong and what we need to do about it and the danger about heuristics are that very often they are based on lots of experience and knowledge that essentially makes a very long process a short one and therefore gives good patient care but sometimes problems can be built into those shortcuts and if those problems are deeply embedded we're no longer aware of why we're doing them and so that can be a basis for unconscious bias. And this is where we do need to be really careful about those shortcuts that we use, because they may be based on, for example, inaccurate data, something that we're no longer conscious of, or based on something that we haven't fully explored properly. I, I think that the uh, sort of vital and, and bigger project is really to, I mean, to trace what, what Foucault calls the genealogy, but I realize that's taken from medicine and probably complicates things, but to look at the, the history of those heuristics to see exactly where they've come from and, and whether they actually they stand up to evidence now or whether they're actually they're just being used uh, as shortcuts uh, and have actually got sort of built-in stereotypes with them. I suppose a summary point for that little part of the discussion is, to, is for our listeners to assume, I think, that they have some unconscious bias because I think we all do to a greater or lesser degree and really challenge themselves about how it might affect their decision making. And I've personally found that a really good way to do that is to have your practice observed. Now that can be a bit more difficult when you're a consultant, perhaps working alone, but certainly in part of healthcare where you're being observed by other people all the time. So working in big teams like we do in the ED and in other areas, it's relatively easy to to observe what other people are doing and to hopefully have them observe you and challenge your practice about what you're doing. Because it may be that you are treating different groups of people differently. And that's a really important thing to be for us to be thinking about. I think I think that's really important. And I think the other thing is also we, we need to be really self-reflective as well. Um, and sometimes, sometimes I don't know if we think about it that much, but we there is a real power imbalance between us and patients. And I was really reminded of this because um, my mum, my who is a retired GP, um, she was going to see her GP a few months ago and she told me that she got dressed up to see her GP. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, why are you doing that? And I, I think it was something around the, the importance of seeing someone who was important. She wanted to make sure that she was on a more kind of equal standing to her GP and I thought that was really interesting so I think power imbalances and thinking about where they are with our patients are important and also the issue around distrust that Darren mentioned is incredibly important because there's a big history to that regarding ethnic minority patients so for example in sexual health um, when we start doing sexual health and we're taught about syphilis one of the reasons that we know so much about syphilis is because of a, um, a big trial called the Tuskegee trial which I'm sure you may have heard about, which was basically a very unethical study where African-Americans were um, were given syphilis without knowing that they were given it, they were inoculated with it. And then they were followed up as a long cohort study over decades to basically look at the effects of primary, secondary and tertiary syphilis over the decades. And they weren't told that they had it. Um, they were allowed to pass it on to their partners. And some of the women gave birth to 
children with congenital syphilis and they were studied as well. And then when we had penicillin, when it was discovered, they weren't given treatment for that. So it's a very good example of unethical um, exploitative research. And although, you know, we don't think that kind of work is being done at the moment, there is a whole massive history around exploitative medical research done on vulnerable communities, especially, for example, enslaved African-Americans done by the Nazis on Jewish prisoners, for example. Mm -hmm. And when we think about power imbalances and trust between doctor and patients, there is sometimes a feeling in communities that they don't trust medical professionals. And I think for us, helping us understand why that might be, it might be due to decades or centuries of unethical practice might better help us understand that there are those, um, you know, that mistrust might be there and that actually we have to really work on the relationship with our patient and kind of reduce that power imbalance if we can. Absolutely. And, and I think a couple of things to draw out on that is that one, that the Tuskegee trials, as far as I remember, are uncomfortably close in human history to where we are now. And, and certainly not so far away for us to think that we are wildly different in terms of our behaviour than we were then. And mm-hmm. secondly, that I, I, I was definitely aware of social media furor about some French physicians who were talking about, in theory, doing some COVID research in Africa. And I won't I guess try and say that they were really deeply trying to suggest that the only place that the research should be done was Africa but it's very easy for misunderstandings to be created by people using language and othering other people and so and and, and even if even even if their their intentions were honorable as you've said Rigeshri it's really important for us to understand why there might be mistrust from another community even if it's unfounded because that will affect the treatments that we use and Part of that is about being aware about the history of research and the ethics of how and why it was done. Giving another um, example from my specialty, um, with antiretroviral drugs, certainly the earliest ones were not very nice. And there was a belief amongst certain communities that when they were being experimented on with antiretroviral drugs, that actually it was the drugs that were killing them, not the HIV. And some of that still exists to to this day, and there's lots of qualitative research which has been done on people who don't take their medications and they still hark back to the fact that they think that they're being used as guinea pigs with these new antiretroviral drugs. In terms of, I guess, the headline questions that we wrote down, how to engage with the I don't see colour cohort. Um, now, I guess I'm also aware that um, that is, I suppose, quite a challenging question, especially if, if a listener is part of that. But I, I, what are your thoughts about addressing that? Should we just tackle it head on? Sure, yeah. So uh, uh, as I understand it, you're talking about when individuals say, I don't see colour. Yeah. Um, because the, the, there's, there's sort of that, that individual phenomenon. There's also the sort of uh, the phenomenon of, of colourblind policymaking. Uh, and colourblind policymaking uh, would be that which doesn't sort of take into account the fact that a policy may disproportionately adversely affect certain communities. And it's where, you you know, your people ask for an equality audit to be done, uh, austerity being a classic example of, of, of one. Um, on the individual level, I think the, the, the notion I don't see colour, I think often comes from from a, a, a good place, a well-intended place. Um, and I often see people sort of back it up with reference to uh, Martin Luther King and talking about, you know, imagining a, a time when people are, uh, are not judged by the colour of their skin, but the content of their character. 
and I think anyone who's sort of involved in in uh, tackling racism shares <laughs> shares that dream. It's not that people are, are against that. It's simply that if we can uh, observe disparities between racialized communities, what is the best method of closing those gaps? And and it's it's not sufficient. Um, I mean, I'm, Elizabeth Anderson says it's you know uh, the colorblind policy is far from sufficient to achieve the colorblind ideal. That if what we want is a is a world where someone's uh, background, racialized background, ethnic background is not significant to their life outcomes, the way we're going to get there will not be by pretending we're already in that world and then denying all the hard evidence that points to that being false yeah that, that absolutely makes sense and so i suppose what i was getting at with them um, trying to bring that up for discussion is that exactly as you say it's very tempting to perceive that you don't treat people differently on a personal level or on a societal level or or when we're talking about groups of people but in order for us to make any advancement and if we're talking specifically about medicine to try and improve outcomes or make them more equitable then we absolutely have to recognize that different groups of people based on any kind of demographic have all kinds of different outcomes and unless we're aware of that then it's going to be extremely difficult to make any change yeah but but, but there, this is complicated and, and i don't want us to come across as thinking it's it's really straightforward because of course if as as we're saying we we acknowledge the the challenges that uh, black and brown people in newham might be facing it we don't want a situation where a doctor seeing a black patient before them uh, immediately assumes that that person is, you know, a victim of racism, is living in an impoverished situation. They could be uh, an overseas student who is doing their PhD in microbiology. There's all kinds of possibilities. Um, so obviously in an ideal situation, and I realize that emergency medicine is is the hardest of these, you're trying to actually get to know your patient as, as a human, as an individual. Um, but I think even where that's always uh, curtailed by, by time uh, constraints, what we're really pushing towards is a, a growing of our repertoire of explanatory uh, frameworks of understanding so that we're not defaulting to something that might be stereotypical, but recognizing there are other possibilities, recognizing those include the fact that the patients might have challenges that they're not immediately going to share with us because they may also have concerns about us, that we might take time to unpack those so that we don't too quickly move to, to something that kind of writes them off as, as someone who can help help us to help them part of why i wanted to do this at all is because i think it's really challenging and i guess as time has gone along when we've been talking i realized that it's it is really challenging to make this um directly relevant to emergency medicine for all the reasons we've said but um i think i think we've definitely touched on areas where it is directly relevant is there anything else that um that you would want to highlight from the piece that you wrote that that um we haven't discussed in enough depth what do you think a sort of general thing and i think you've touched about it with observations etc is really the challenge of, of really developing a culture of learning 
that, you know, you've used the language of unconscious bias. Uh, some might use the language of institutional racism uh, and, and look at the McPherson report's definition of that. And and in that, it's not talking about uh, ill intent. It's not talking about, you know, personal hostility, which is how a lot of people still really you know, conceive of racism. But it might simply be that we have thoughts and processes and everyday procedures that will produce uh, will produce uh, unequal outcomes. Um, so I think if we can develop a situation where we don't mind a colleague, perhaps in private, in in the spirit of learning, challenging us on something, and and be able to sit with that discomfort, because no one likes to be challenged on stuff. You know, you know that's it's it's difficult. But if they're doing it, you know, with patient care. At, at, as the focus, then to sit with that discomfort and consider the possibility that maybe something can be done differently, I think that's really going to help um, medical professionals and ultimately patients in the long run. I think getting too quick towards a culture where people are condemned, people who are working hard under pressure with the best intentions are condemned, will create a culture where they actually shut down and share even less for fear of being found out. And I think that's really counterproductive. So it's really that 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 culture of learning that allows for constructive challenge, I think, is is the ideal. And I realize that's very big picture stuff. But I think, you know, when I've worked in schools and, and had the seniority to to try and create that, I've seen, you know, the effects that 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 that, that, that can produce. What are your thoughts, Rageshri? I think it's I think we we work in a profession where we are very much taught facts as medical students, and then we're taught skills. So we're taught communication skills. And I think we spend a lot of time learning those facts and then how best to use them in our practice, which is a good thing. But I think there's less room in the medical curriculum to have critical thinking about where those facts come from. Um, and I think that's probably something that we could incorporate more. So having discussions like this, where we start to critique things that are possibly held as kind of you know long-term beliefs so just to give a little example um, and one that I didn't know of until a couple of years ago is when we measure kidney function so we're taught to measure kidney function and somewhere along the line I was taught that when um, measuring EGFR that I should adjust for ethnicity so for black patients I should um, times the number by a certain amount um, and what that then meant was that it gave a higher EGFR um, than what was actually kind of calculated if that makes sense um so there i'd never questioned where that why we did that um i've learned that the assumption was that black people have a higher muscle mass than other than people of other ethnicities but i never really knew where that data came from i never thought why has you know this frail 80 year old black woman in front of me got more muscle mass than this young 20 year old white guy um why am I still adjusting for ethnicity with her I've never really questioned that and actually if you think about um where that comes from such established kind of medical practice actually the, the scientific rationale for it is actually quite dodgy um and from some of my reading I found that for example um they came up with this assumption in the 60s so they did some um experiments on school children um, living in the southern states of the US and they basically measured um, body fat using calipers so what they found out was that black children had less body fat than white children 
and the assumption for that was then made that they must mean they have more muscle and then that kind of became black people have more muscle and then that was used when they started to think about how to calculate kidney function um, and obviously when we think about why black children living in the southern states of the US in the 60s might have less body fat there's probably quite a lot of reasons that aren't due to them being racialized as black it's probably well it's to due to the social issues they might be more likely to live in poverty have less access to food and nutrition compared to their white counterparts but I think it's an interesting example of how medical practice um, has come from you know from evidence that we, we no longer think about where that evidence has come from it's just established medical practice and we use it every day and when you think about how that affects our patients now if we are assuming the kidney function is better than it is because the patient is black it means that we are delaying investigations mm -hmm. into deteriorating kidney function it means that we are delaying dial dialysis for some patients so actually you know it can have real world impacts and I think going back to what I said earlier about be needing to be critical in me medical education I think developing more room for discussion about where where our knowledge comes from would be useful I suppose it would be good to summarise and for, for me to ask you both to tell our listeners what, what you think the most important takeaway points are from the article you wrote to practice of working in a hospital and, and seeing patients. So I guess my thought is it is recognise where there are gaps in the research. Now, if you're someone who's minded to, to engage in research, that's always a useful thing to do. But even if you're not, by recognising those gaps there, you realise that actually this might be something where there's even more uncertainty than other areas. Uh, and if we don't know them to be gaps, we proceed uh, with, you know, with relative level of certainty. And I think that's when we get into a real dangerous situation. So for me, I think it's just important that when we think about causes for disparities, that we don't think of social and biolog biological causes being completely different to each other realising that social causes can affect biology. So as we talked earlier about increasing risk of diabetes and hypertension, um, and that when we look at disparities, we don't immediately just go for, for one cause. It's a complex interplay. And, and I have to just say, and it might seem a very glib thing, just to uh, completely do away with the use of the word Caucasian. Uh, I, it was quite a shock to me. Am I allowed to say this? Yeah. Oh, it was a shock to me to, to know that there are there are doctors who are still using you know words like that. I mean, black is is a word that is used uh, and has been claimed by a population, but to use Caucasian as if it somehow is some kind of medical term um, is is worrying. Yeah, and and if I'm honest, look, I I can't lie and say that I've never done that, and 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 I think sure. this is the this is the worrying thing about about the rate of change of knowledge. And I'm not gonna try and pretend that, you know, it's 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 just now that terminology has changed, but I guess it, it's challenging to be and keep up to date and to be, and to, to just try and keep up with how language changes. And this is this goes all across, not just what we've talked about, many other things as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean my, my point, my point raising it, Chris, isn't isn't the sort of so called you know the, the thing that's accused of political correctness of of the terminology. It's that it's it's the the language seems to hint at it, it, it's situated in you know a racial taxonomy, 
Uh, and I, I think in the US, the police still use it, but let's not go there. But but the term itself has no meaning really outside of racial taxonomies. And I think, as as I guess I've, I've said you know, a number of times in our conversation today, that we really need to be aware of the, the legacy of pseudoscientific racial taxonomies and how, unless we're careful, they still seep in to what is otherwise good science. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Darren and Ragashree. And I hope it was as challenging and thought-provoking to listen to as it was to make. Now, if you go to our webpage at netragplus.wordpress.com, you'll find uh, accompanying blog post to the podcast with some suggested reading and to some of the things that you'll have heard both of them reference during our conversation. We'd really love for you to get in touch with us to let us know what you think. There's various ways for you to do that. You can comment directly on the blog post on the website that I mentioned, or you can also get in touch on social media via Twitter at NetRagPlus, but also on Instagram as well, NetRagPlus, and the website that I mentioned. Thank you so much for listening to NetRag Plus. Don't forget to bookmark us in whichever podcast service you use for your listening pleasures and come back and listen to us again next time. Mm-hmm.